All right, if it keeps doing that, we'll just uh, eliminate the de demons there in our sound uh, soundboard. <clears throat> anyway, what I was starting to say is, I uh, hope you'll forgive any shortcomings in the message with this water situation. It was basically Tuesday noon to, uh, to Friday that we were just trying to make decisions on how to handle that, and hopefully uh, the Lord the Lord will work that out. I, I told somebody, you know, if I'm lazy, then I can't expect the Lord to make up for shortcomings, but he understands, of course, our week. But I think, I think we've got an a, uh, encouraging challenge from Luke 13. Uh, we've been talking about Luke uh, almost for uh, three years, and right now there's no greater blessing for me each week than to continue each Monday to look at the next passage that we'll be studying in Luke and to think and dwell and study and then proclaim the wonder and worth and work of Jesus. Um, to think of someday meeting him, talking to him, worshiping him in heaven is somewhat overwhelming and so I, I stand uh, before you understanding the great weight of expressing him accurately but nothing should give us as Christians more delight than thinking about the character and nature of Jesus. Today it was his mercy, just one facet of his glory. We just, we just focus on his mercy today. Next week we'll be focusing on something else about our Savior. But the highlight for believers each week is to gather with other believers, talk amongst ourselves about him, sing together to him, he is the audience and focus of our meeting. This service is not planned with any of you in mind. This service is not planned with what I enjoy in mind. This service is a worship service for Christ. We don't go around to the community and say, what would make you comfortable at this church? And then design our church so that people who walk in will feel like they've come to a country club. We want people to come in here and feel like, this is different than anywhere else I go. In a good way. Not because there's a bunch of weirdos here. But because there is some, we are living for something other than ourselves. And the focus of all of our attention is not the pastor, it's not each other, but it's Christ. So our series has been the greatest story ever told because in the 60s or 70s they put out that movie about the, the, uh, the life of Christ called The Greatest Story Ever Told, and it really is. We've heard these stories, many of us, all our lives. This one specifically about the woman who was healed on the Sabbath day is... Is, uh, is so unique and special. And I want to I see the working of Christ today and hopefully encourage you in that way. Let's read the section we'll be studying today. Uh, it's verses 10 to 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. I'm sure he said it just like that. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? 
And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid it in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Let's ask God for his help. This is his word. We've already had some distractions this morning. Let's ask him to help us. Father, here's your word to us. We just read it. We don't have to wonder what you're saying or what you're revealing to us. We just read it, but I pray that you'd help me now to accurately explain it and exhort all of us in the truth of this particular passage. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for not destroying us because of our sin, but providing a way for us to have our sins taken away, buried in the depths of the sea. Our sins, though they are many, and we could all name hundreds of sins that we've committed even this week, but your mercy is more. Your mercy is greater than our sins. Your grace is greater than all our sin. Help us, Father, in the story of this woman who was healed and in the reaction of the synagogue leader and in the parables that Jesus told to glean truths from our lives that would help us today better understand Jesus' mission and then be a good example of Jesus' mercy to the world that we live in today. Keep us free from distractions, and uh, may, may our attention be fully focused for these next 30 minutes or so on this uh, wonderful passage in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Just a little background before we uh, examine the specifics of this story as we walk back through the Gospels, and specifically in Luke, where the word kingdom comes up a lot. In Luke 4, verse 43, when Jesus is preaching, he says, I have to go preach the kingdom. I have to preach the kingdom to others too. Early on in his ministry, the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom. We just talked about repentance last week. In John 7, John the Baptist was confused because he's in prison. He's thinking, uh, did I get my wires crossed on this? I, I'm in jail. Uh, I'm not sure this was supposed to happen. He sends some disciples of his to go inquire of the Lord. Are, 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 were you really it or should we wait for somebody else? And Jesus said to those men who came and asked about this, say, go back to John and tell him all that you're observing. Lame people are being healed. Blind people are beginning to see. Uh, people who are in bondage are set at liberty, and the gospel is being preached to all. And Jesus says that because in Luke 4, very, we talked about this a long time ago, when Jesus was in the synagogue at Nazareth, a guy, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, asked Jesus to come and be the speaker that day. Open up the scroll and read. And Jesus opens to Isaiah 60, 61, and he starts reading about the messianic prophecy of what, what this Christ would do when he came. And, and in Luke 4.18, it says, uh, in fact, we're, we're just seven chapters away. Why don't we go back and look at it so we don't paraphrase what it says? Because what we're going to see in Luke 13 is a fulfillment, partial fulfillment of what he's saying the Messiah had come to do. This is Luke 4.16. He came to Nazareth where, Nazareth where he had been brought up. And so he's going to be rejected, of course, because they say this is the carpenter's son. Um, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found, so Jesus choosing, found the place where it was written, 
And here's the quote. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the people are looking at him like, this is very interesting. And Jesus says down in verse 21, the scripture's happening. The scripture's happening. This is a moment in time where I would love to be there. People always say, well, I'd love to see this on the big screen, Noah's flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or something. I want to see what that looked like. Daniel and the, his, fr- or his friends in the, in the uh, fiery furnace. This is one I'd like to be at. Just sitting in the back seat in the synagogue, Jesus opens up this scroll, says Messiah's going to come and proclaim uh, the gospel and uh, unburden everybody who's in bondage and heal the blind. And then he sits down and says, everybody's looking at him. And he says, what I just read, it's happening, folks. It's happening. And the people, of course, respond negatively. They, they reject that. And uh, the, point of, the point of it is, this is the Messiah's ministry. And in Luke 13, when he heals this woman, which we'll talk about in just a minute, he's actually doing a partial fulfillment of what he said to do. He's setting at liberty this woman who was oppressed. And so it's a manifestation that the kingdom is here. But sadly, it, it's almost unbelievable that there are people going to reject that. Jesus came the gospel, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and this is that gospel, that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness, to live a life that we failed to live, to die a death that we deserve to die, so that we can be dressed, like we just sang about, dressed in his righteousness divine. One of the titles in the Bible for Christ that I love, almost, almost love this more than any other title, is he's called the second Adam, the second Adam. Because the first Adam, we call him a complete failure, right? He, he was placed in the garden, perfect conditions, failed. Failed to do what God had said. One thing, failed. So the second Adam comes and he will succeed. He will fulfill all righteousness. And that law he will fulfill is summarized in two great statements. Which are, now we have some people gone today, maybe weather-wise, smaller crowd today, but let's, how is the whole law of God summarized? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some believe the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, those first four commands, are kind of summarized by loving God with all your heart. Don't take his name in vain, no idols, no graven images, keep his name holy. And then the other uh, commandments, the last six, all relate to our interpersonal relationships, so we love our neighbor as ourself. It is this law that Jesus fulfilled perfectly, loving God and loving others, where all of the rest of us fail, either by being hypocrites, just flat-out immoral, sinful people, or moralists, legalists, who attempt to, by living up to the law, obtain the favor of God. Remember the audacity of the guy who said, what must I have to do to obtain eternal life? And you would think Jesus would answer like any great Baptist preacher, repeat after me, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Doesn't give him the sinner's prayer, says, you want eternal life? Keep the commandments. Which ones? Jesus is already getting a... a, a, uh, a discernment of what his heart is, as well as all these things, love your, you know, he gives some of those commandments. And the guy says, all these I have done since my youth. He doesn't understand that, no, he has failed and needs that second Adam's success to be credited to him. That is the message of the gospel. 
And the message of the gospel is proven valid by the miracles that Jesus performed. That's why the connection in Luke 4 and Isaiah 61 is that he would heal and, and, uh, and uh, even raise from the dead. And, and so here he is doing that in this particular story in the synagogue. Now this is a little unusual because we haven't seen Jesus in the synagogue in Luke since Luke 6 when he healed the guy with the, with the crumpled up hand. And when he healed the guy with the crumpled up hand, we have a very similar response to the, to the time where we have him in the synagogue here healing this woman. He hadn't been in the synagogue since. He won't be in the synagogue again. He's been rejected by the Jews. He is teaching in the synagogue, and there's three main characters, and so this is going to be the message. We're going to look at the three main characters and learn a lesson really from each one, and that'll be our lesson today. The three main characters are the woman. We don't even have a name for her, but she's the woman who is disabled. We have Jesus, of course, and then we have the ruler of the synagogue. He's the villain of the story. Um, and it, it really is unthinkable, his response. I, I mean... We've heard this story, but I hope we'll, we'll see it with fresh eyes. Let's start with the woman. What do we learn about her? We don't even know her name, but we know that she has a, quote, disabling spirit in verse 11. This disabling spirit is defined as a, in the Greek as a sickness or a weakness, some sort of infirmity that she'd been suffering for for unbelievable, two decades, two decades. Uh, a lot of the scholars believe that it's some sort of spine problem, that her bones somehow fused together and caused her to be unable to even stand erect. She, she's hunched over, the scripture says. She's bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So it, she's, she's already, uh, in, in this society as a woman, would be treated by the Jewish uh, synagogue rulers as kind of a lesser person, not right, but that's how they would view her, you know, this is men's business, etc. And now she also has a disabling spirit that is causing her to, to be hunched over in some way. Uh, every minute of the day, looking at the ground, in fact, one person wrote, it's as if she's looking down as if seeking a grave. That's a, it's an interesting way to think about it. Um, it's, it's really uh, interesting to me, Luke is a what? Luke, what's his occupation? You'd think we'd get a little more information about this as a doctor, which she'd say, well, she has a spinal flandritis or whatever the word was that I read. But, but he attributes the disease to a spiritual problem. And not a spiritual problem in the woman, but that she has been oppressed, not possessed, by a demon. And it's even, but our Lord says that in verse number 19, uh, or excuse me, verse number 16, that Satan has bound this woman in this spirit. This is not a fault of her own. Remember last week we said, when we see people suffering, we shouldn't immediately jump to say, well, there must be a sin in that person's life. Right, it must be a sin, woman, that you've had this problem for 18 years. Some people just endure physical problems because we live in a sin-cursed world, or perhaps it is a demonic attack. That's what's happening here. 18 years. Besides the physical pain, she must have been a social outcast. Folks, when we see people who are disabled... Right, the word we as a society use, and rightfully so, is that person is special. They're, they have special needs. But even in our culture, a person who is disabled is often, is often looked at. And I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but if, if a person came into our congregation today who was bent over, we would notice that person because of their disability. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we would observe that. I, I know we would all be kind. We would all be gracious. But what we would notice about that person is their physical problem. 
And, and that's what happens, and, and without giving examples, that's what happens in our society. Imagine the scrutiny that woman must have felt just because maybe she would feel like she's defined by this disability or she's noticed by this disability or even kind of rejected because of this ability. We don't want Sally there. I mean, she's, all she's going to do is talk about her problem. We're going to just, we got to kind of overlook her. You see what I'm saying? It's not just the physical pain that this woman probably endured, but the social anxiety and being overlooked, whispered about, neglected, and even ostracized. No question. Right? That's, I'm sure that's even how disabled people may feel in our society. And we should do all we can not to promote that type of attitude. One other thing we learn about this woman, besides the things we're mentioning, is that Jesus calls her, in verse number uh, 16 again, a daughter of Abraham. I don't believe that, the, that Jesus is just saying that to identify her as a Jew. Some people think that just means, oh, she's a Jew. I think there's more to it than that. Abraham, of course, is a symbol of faith. The man in the Old Testament who did what God said, leave your home and go, he does. Take your son and kill him, he does. Abraham in Romans chapter 4 is counted as a man of faith. And, so, and the only other time this is used in the New Testament is when Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. And he calls him that after Zacchaeus' conversion. He says, truly, this is a son of Abraham. I believe what Jesus is saying about this person being a daughter of Abraham is not just to indicate that she is a Jew, but really that she is a believer, a follower of God. Okay, so here's what we know about this woman. 18 years suffered from this debilitating bone disease that caused her to be physically hunched over, unable to, to lift herself up, and not only that, we can surmise that she was socially ostracized and neglected, depressed, discouraged. That phrase, looking down, always looking down as if looking for a grave. Do you think she ever thought to herself, it would be better to die? After 18 years? Can't imagine. But where do we find this disabled, disheartened, discouraged, depressed, debilitated woman? Where do we find her? Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Think about what her attitude could be, and we're, we're kind of speculating on the scripture because we're just, it doesn't say this about her, but could it be after 18 years she would think, God, why? She's a believer. I, I believe the daughter of Abraham means she's a follower of God. God, why? Don't you love, don't you care about me? It'd be much easier for me to just stay home. Why would I want to go anyway and be neglected, treated unfairly, or just kind of gawked at? You know, there's bent over Betty. I mean, we know how kids are. We know how adults can be. I mean, things don't change. Human nature is the same. I don't want to see people in the corner, you know, whispering about me. And yet we find her at the synagogue. When we ourselves come up with numerous excuses to absent ourselves from worship, don't you think this woman has those reasons and far more? I mean, let this be a lesson to us and I want to read something to you that I was going to just copy, but there's so much of it that is good. J.C. Ryle, the English Puritan pastor, I mean, this, this woman puts us to shame. Here's what, I don't usually like reading things to you, but this, this is helpful. The conduct of this suffering woman may put to shame many a strong professing Christian. How many, in the full enjoyment of their own bodily vigor, allow the most frivolous excuses to keep them away from the house of God. How many are constantly spending the whole Sunday in idleness, pleasure-seeking, business, 
and scoffing at, and sneering at those who keep the Sabbath. How many find religious services a weariness when they attend them and feel relieved when they are over? How few know anything of David's spirit when he said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Why, uh, what is the explanation for these feelings? What is the reason so few are like the woman who we read about? The answer is short and simple. It is that most have no heart for God. They have no delight in his presence or his day. The moment a man's heart is truly converted, those difficulties about attending public worship vanish away. The new heart has no trouble keeping the Sabbath holy. And this is, this is the final statement. Let us not forget that our feelings about Sunday and worship are sure tests of the state of our souls. The man who can find no pleasure in giving God one day in the week is manifestly unfit for heaven. Rao wouldn't be invited to many churches saying that. I appreciate what he says. It's convicting, isn't it? Um, your attitude towards this day and this service are an indicator of where you're at spiritually. That's why I started saying this service isn't for us. We have to understand that we do not come to get something here. We are here to give something unto the Lord. And I really like what he said there about the need. Let us not forget that our feelings about Sunday are sure tests of the state of our own souls. I'm just shocked that many who do not even want to come to church want to go to heaven. That's what Ryle says. The person who doesn't care about the Lord's Day, they're not going to enjoy heaven. What do you think heaven's going to be? Because the world thinks heaven's going to be the indulgence of whatever it is we enjoyed here. If we were a golfer... Imagine the golf courses in heaven. If we like barbecue, imagine the feasts we'll enjoy there. Right? If we like water skiing, I mean, they say these, these nonsensical things about people. Oh, he, he enjoyed card playing. I'm sure he's up there having a great poker game. And, I mean, this is nonsense. Read Revelation 4 and 5. They are gathered around the throne and they sing forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. We had a Christian woman once tell our children, well, I don't want to go to heaven if it's just going to be opening up the songbook and singing hymn after hymn after hymn after There's an indicator of where our souls are at. It is a joy and our, it is really our delight to gather and to sing wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore, Right? Uh, the worship was so boring today. I just can't wait till this is over and get on with it. This woman is a shame to us. Bending over, making her way to the synagogue to gather for worship after 18 years of what she could certainly claim is God turning a blind eye to her problem. What, a, what an example. Let's look at Jesus. Here this woman comes. We can speculate that she, this is her habit, her custom. I doubt this is just, oh, I just happened to come this day and Jesus was there. I don't imagine she woke up on her way to the synagogue and thought, this is the day I'm going to be healed. This is just another faithful attempt at following God for her. And yet she doesn't realize that though she will come discouraged, she will leave healed. 
Now let's dwell on the character of God, the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week in the parable of the barren fig tree, we saw that Jesus, as the vine dresser, was going to allow the tree to have more time to produce the fruit. What a great, merciful point that is. Here, he shows his mercy in a different way, and I think we can count the mercy of Christ in a couple of different ways. First, of course, we need the saving mercy of Christ, which is that he withholds the punishment that we deserve. We all deserve judgment. Our nation deserves judgment. We as individuals deserve judgment. God withholds that and gives us mercy. But mercy is also the concept of connecting with someone who is sorrowing and sharing in their burden. This woman didn't need saving mercy of God. In my opinion, she didn't need the saving mercy of God. She had already discovered that. She's a daughter of Abraham. That's why she's going to the synagogue. That's why she's worshiping. She's, she's sincere. My belief that she is. I mean, maybe may proven wrong in heaven, but that's from my study. I think that's what's happening. But she certainly could use the mercy of Christ in the connection with her in her disability. And that's exactly what she gets. Jesus is connecting to someone who is sorrowing and expressing his love to her in three different ways, three different ways. And this is an example to us. The woman serves as an example to us. Now Jesus is going to serve as an example to us. Look at his actions to the woman. Verse number 12. Remember, she's bent over, can't fully straighten herself. Jesus saw her, called her over, and said to her, woman, you are freed from her disability. Puts his hands on her, verse 13, and immediately she was made straight. This is, this is an instantaneous miracle, and she glorified God. What are the things Jesus did? He sees her, he summons her, and he speaks to her. Let's talk about each one. He sees her, he summons her, and then he speaks to her. The first thing is he sees her. Isn't that enough? He sees her. Uh, after perhaps going unnoticed or neglected by everyone else, Jesus sees. When this woman, and maybe when we think that all is helpless and no one cares, we can be assured that Jesus sees. Jesus knows and sees her. And, and I think what he sees is her disability expressed in her physical demeanor, and it's like, I see that problem, and you know what? I'm going to solve that problem. I'm going to have mercy on that person. He sees her. He doesn't look away. He actually summons her. This is the second thing. He summons her to himself. People with physical disabilities in that day, and I would suggest that even in our day, People with physical disabilities are supposed to remain socially invisible. That's kind of the expectation. Put them in a different class, right? Treat them a different way. That's not right. Jesus summons her. Can you imagine the people? They're probably freaking out. We already know the ruler's going to be mad. First of all, rabbis weren't supposed to talk to women in general. And he touches the woman, touches her to heal her. He summons her over. What would be going through this woman's mind? Who knows if she knew the Lord prior to this? I, the Bible doesn't say. We, just, we can speculate on that. He called her over. He approached her. He initiates the conversation and then speaks to her words of healing. Woman, you are freed from your disability. He is ultimately now fulfilling that messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61 pronounced in Luke 14, and the woman is immediately healed. The word here that is used in the Greek is to, is to demonstrate it is permanent healing. So after 18 years, think about it, after 18 years of this, can you imagine? She glorifies God. Now let's pause here for a minute as well and think about the example of Christ. Do you claim to be a follower of Christ? Okay, some of you do. Hope most of us do. 
do we express the mercy of God in this way to other people? This is the second tablet of the law, loving others as ourselves. And we must, as Christians, understand the priority of people over the priority of programs or a system or a building. And we can ask ourselves this, do we see, do we summon, do we speak? We don't have the ability to heal, of course. We can do these other things. The mercy, even just the mercy of seeing, of noticing, of speaking, of calling people over, of encouraging. In Matthew 9, verse 13, in response to those who were religious, Jesus says these words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What he's saying here is that Pharisees or religious people often like to focus on outward ritual and ceremony and may be very doctrinally and theologically correct, but what this makes them is self-righteous and harsh with those who are sinners and those who are suffering, and they never reach out in mercy. Folks, this ministry must be about people, encouraging people, evangelizing people, loving people, being merciful to people, not saying, oh, that person is suffering, they deserve what they get. They've made their choices, they've made their bed, now they've got to lie in it. Or certainly someone else will do this. The pastor gets paid for that. We must practice the mercy of Christ that we ourselves so freely enjoy. We must see them, summon them, speak to them, lift them up, encourage them, and especially so on the Lord's Day. That's what this day is for. That's going to be the tension now because the guy's going to say, you shouldn't have done this on this day. And Jesus says, that's what this day is for. It's a day for mercy. It's a day for expressing this. It's interesting that what we praise in Jesus, his mercy, hasn't this been a nice theme today? Some of the themes are maybe tougher for us to get our arms around, but when we think about merciful God, oh, abounding in love, faithful through times we have failed you, and, and our sins, they are many, your mercy is more, and we are resting in the joy of what they are, and we praise him for this mercy, but we don't practice it ourselves. We don't see those who are hurting. We don't go to those who are hurting because we're too busy with ourselves. Our ministry must focus on people. That is what Christ did here. Third person in the story is the ruler. We've got to get going here. Third person in the story is the ruler. Now, here's the villain. This guy is unbelievable. He is the one in charge of the service. He's called in verse number four. Uh, sorry, my numbers are very small. 14. The ruler of the synagogue. Now, this guy was responsible for organizing the service, choosing the readers, keeping the service going, picking the passages, etc. that would be read. And he <laughs> has this weird response. Now, he must have known this woman. Again, we're speculating, but they're, they're, in, this, they're in this area where, I mean, it, it, she had to have been seen and known as the woman who the bent over Betty. You know, she had to be known. And he sees her healed. Wouldn't you think he'd say, Great! I mean, wouldn't everybody's reaction be like, this is wonderful. Praise God, Betty, you're not bent over. Right? Now we've got to call you stand-up Sally or whatever. Wouldn't you say, this is fantastic. Praise God, just like the woman did. She glorified God. But this guy says, and, and this guy is a total loser, because 
Because he doesn't even talk to Jesus. Do you see that in the passage? He doesn't even confront Jesus with the problem. He tries to get the other people on his side. Isn't that what it says? The ruler, verse 14, became indignant. Indignant is this self-righteous kind of anger. How could the Lord do this in my synagogue? Right? Doesn't call him the Lord, of course. Doesn't call him the Lord. He became indignant because Jesus, not because Jesus had healed, but because he did it on the Sabbath. And he says to the people, He's going to quote scripture, folks. He's going to quote Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20. That Both of those places talk about this verse. Can you imagine Jesus heals this woman? Betty standing over there straight and tall now. And Folks, six days shall you labor. This, this is not for the Sabbath. And, and, and almost like she's lived with it for 18 years. Come back tomorrow. That's the attitude, isn't it? That's the attitude. What he's saying is, the law is what is important. People don't matter. Is the law important? Yes. Are people important? I like the idea of people who say, I'm not a people person. I'm, I'm just not a people person. When they're, when they're confronted by this type of truth about loving others as ourselves and showing mercy to others and going out of their way to be kind and summon, and a, I'm not a people person. That is not an excuse. Every Christian must be a people person. Must be. Have to be. And some of, for some of that's, that, that's obviously more difficult. It is. It just is. Some of us have the ability to connect and talk and really bear the burdens of other people and show that in a demonstrable way. Some of us struggle with that. We have, maybe have anxiety about talking to people or, or just are, are wired differently. We're task-oriented people, not people-oriented people. Well, that, that, you got to work at that. You can't use that as an excuse and just say, I gotta stop putting my water there. You gotta, you gotta use, use as use and go out of your way to meet with people. If you really want to be like the Lord, and we do, then you have to do that. We all have to do better at that. In this man's arrogance, he turns to the crowd, and I would say, sadly, this man respond, res, this man's response may actually mirror some of our own, because we're so concerned about observance to the law, like we want to monitor everybody's behavior to make sure the law is observed instead of realizing that people are important. Now, of course, we don't throw away the law. We don't cast away the law. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But look at Jesus' response, and he clarifies where the law fits in all of this. Jesus did not say you couldn't do these type of things on the Sabbath. He just said the Sabbath was to be for these special purposes. It is the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the Jewish interpretations of the law where they wrote out all the details of how to fulfill that law, if you follow what I'm saying. So you have the Old Testament scriptures, which is the word of God. Then you have this Mishnah, which is the scribe's interpretation of it. So the scribes say, okay, we cannot work on the Sabbath. So they would make this other, uh, start out as oral traditions, but then they were codified in, in, a, in a book or on a scroll, and we say, okay, here's what we got to do on the Sabbath, right? If you want to wear a bandana, you can wear it around your neck, but you can't carry it in your hand because that's labor. But if you wear it upon your neck, that's fine. We can't, you can't spit into the ground and put your shoe over it because that's like watering the ground and plowing it. I mean, all these rules. They said, if you want to build a fire and you want to gather sticks, you got to put them this distance. God didn't put up any of that stuff. God didn't put up any of that stuff. And in fact, Jesus says to, the, to, these, uh, to these people, he calls them, hypocrites. Hypocrites are people who don't understand God's purpose, cannot accurately grasp the meaning of the scripture, and so their piety and their religion just becomes a total sham. 
Jesus points them out as hypocrites, meaning it wasn't just the ruler of the synagogue. He calls them plural. There's other people that are in agreement. And he points something out here. He says, you care for your animals more than you care for people. You untie your donkey. I'm going to just paraphrase here. You can look at the scripture to see exactly what Jesus says. You untie your donkey. You'll take your cow, your goats, your sheep, and you'll lead them to water. And you'll show mercy to those animals. You don't go out to your barn and say, sorry, uh, we can't water you today. And then he says, he kind of argues from the lesser to the greater, should not this woman who's, you think about these animals who have been bound or tied for a night. This woman's been bound and tied by Satan for 18 years. Shouldn't we, shouldn't I, if I can handle this problem, shouldn't I do that and loose her from this pain? Shouldn't this woman be able to find mercy on the Sabbath? This is a day for mercy. And Jesus is absolutely right. Caring for the animals, you know, we're going to keep the law. You come back tomorrow, lady, and maybe he'll heal you then. As a result, there are some responses to this particular incident. And whatever Jesus does creates division. A couple weeks ago, in fact, we might look back even to where he says it, in Luke 12, verse 49, he talks about the fact that he came to earth to create division. Jesus, responses to Jesus divide. We, We all understand that. And it is clear that that happens here at the end of this story. Nobody's sitting on the fence. Nobody's neutral about this. There are two groups of people as a result of what Jesus did on that day to help this woman, to show her mercy. There's rejectors and there's rejoicers. There are people who were his adversaries who were put to shame, but they still disagreed that this was, they said this was wrong, opposing what Jesus is doing. Can you imagine? It just, it just blows the mind to think, I mean, it, it would be like us. It would be like us saying, "Well, the Lord's day is for God," and we drive by and we see uh, some elderly couple on the road with a flat tire. Well, we'd love to stop and help, but uh, you know, we're we're uh, we can't do that on the Lord's day, right? It's a day for mercy. That would be our attitude. That's the attitude of the religious ruler. And then there's the people who rejoice. They say, "What God is doing here, what God is doing through Christ, is wonderful." And they rejoice. No one can be neutral. No one sits on the fence. And I know what group we'd like to think ourselves as being in. We all like to say, well, we'd be in the rejoicers. But I wonder if we might be deceiving ourselves. Those who have been forgiven much, Jesus said, will forgive others much. Those who have been shown mercy will show it. James chapter 2 is a wonderful little account where he talks about uh, those who... act with judgment will receive judgment and those who act with mercy will receive mercy and james 2 13 specifically says mercy triumphs over judgment what he's basically saying in that passage is those who show mercy to others in this way demonstrate that they have received that mercy and those who don't show mercy to other people in that way demonstrate that they haven't received that mercy it's another indication of truly whether or not we follow christ you know what there is in christianity today there's a lot of judgment and sometimes there need there there needs to be that you know i don't think you're truly following christ here we we need to encourage you in this way but there's a lot of judgment of others instead of mercy reaching out kindness compassion 
That is what Christ models for us here. Now, as a result of all that's done here, Jesus goes on and tells these two little parables, and it seems strange. But the word therefore in verse number eight, uh, 18 connects the, the, the miracle that he did with this woman to these two little parables. And I promise, two minutes will be done. What are these parable kingdoms about the mustard seed and the, uh, the leaven mixed in, with the fl- mixed in with the flour? What do they have to do with the, the miracles? Well, the rejection that the ruler had and the rejection that the other adversaries in that synagogue had that day is, is a rejection of the kingdom rule of Christ. How stubborn and hard-hearted do you have to be to see this, what they thought was a man, healing this woman who had been struggling for 18 years and still reject that person? How stubborn and hard-hearted do you have to be? So their rejection of Christ is not just a rejection of simply what he did on the Sabbath, but a rejection of his rule. They did not want his rule in their lives. And so it appears to the disciples and to us that this opposition against Jesus will hinder the success of the kingdom. Like, how is the kingdom going to advance in the face of this kind of stubbornness? Think about this. You talk to unbelievers sometimes? I'm sure you do. You share the gospel with them sometimes, and you just see this blindness. Think, how am I ever going to get through this? Man, is this ever going to succeed? Here's Jesus healing a woman who'd been hurt for 18 years, and the people didn't respond. Jesus in the very room. He'd just been teaching See, verse 10 says he had been teaching. Jesus is a better teacher than me. (laughs) You didn't say amen to that, but you should have. Jesus is a better teacher than me. He's explaining the words of God. And then he backs it up by healing this woman, and you got people who didn't respond. And we wonder why people might not respond to us. It is the sovereignty of God working in their hearts. And Jesus says, I think Jesus says these parables so we don't get discouraged. Who say, well, if Jesus can't succeed, or it looks like he can't succeed with certain people, how are we going to ever succeed? And he tells these two little parables to tell us that indeed, even in the face of opposition, there is hope that the kingdom will succeed. And he uses these two little parables, seed and yeast. This seed in verse number 18 that is the grain of a mustard seed, he takes it, plants it in the garden, becomes a tree, and the birds of the air make nests in its branches. The parable teaches us that a seemingly insignificant thing will have a tremendous outcome. And even though the kingdom may start small, it will end big. At the end of Jesus' life, this is, this is crazy. You know, we have like 35 people here today. You know, we, man, do we want this church to grow? Absolutely. Would I love hundreds of people to be in here hearing the gospel? Yes. Whatever the Lord does with it, he does with it, okay? Jesus, at the end of three years of ministry, greatest man who ever lived, God-man, Greatest teacher, all these miracles have 120 people in the upper room. 120. He had fed 25,000 people. Wouldn't you think 100, it'd be more than 100? There's 120. All of his disciples are brutally killed. Yet here we are today. We're still worshiping Christ. There are churches all over the globe today. Christian people, has Christianity stopped? Has the kingdom of God stopped because of the opposition of people? Throughout history, right? One of my favorite ones is, is, is was it Voltaire, or, or uh, the, the name might not be right, who said, by the end of my life, the Bible will not be printed anymore. It will just be an ancient relic studied in museums. And less than 50 years after his death, his home was used to make Bibles by the Geneva Bible Society. God is funny. That is funny. 
The kingdom of God will advance. And here it says, it will branch into a tree where birds will nest. Most believe that this is a symbol of the Gentile nations finding, uh, finding shade and shelter because of the gospel. Here we are today, 2,000 years later, still praising wonderful, merciful Savior. The kingdom has continued to advance in the face of opposition. We face serious opposition, and let, this, let us understand that this does not mean the kingdom is just going to grow and grow and grow until it overcomes, and we kind of usher in the kingdom. There is this thinking that is, as, as we kind of just build on our, on our growth and spirituality, that the kingdom will just kind of usher in. Do you think the kingdom's ushering in after what they did in New York this week? They light the building pink to celebrate killing children up to the minute that they are born? So... The, the kingdom is not going to come through political means. It's not going to come through legal means. But the gospel will continue to advance, even in the face of that wild opposition. Isn't that great? That's hopeful. That's hopeful. Even in the face of this guy who sees this miracle. And we struggle because we share with our loved ones the glory of Christ and the change he's made in our lives, and they will not respond. We can have hope. The seed is to indicate the success that the gospel, that the kingdom will have among the nations. The yeast is, is taught to demonstrate the success it will have in individuals. Let's talk about the yeast real quick. So the, the seed tells us the kingdom will succeed among the nations. It will continue to grow and advance, even in the face of opposition. The yeast tells us it will succeed in the hearts of individuals. It says in the passage that the, leaven is like, that the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman takes and puts it in three measures of flour. A measure of flour is 4.25 gallons. So this is 50 pounds of flour. What Jesus says is that the leaven or the yeast will, will permeate and powerfully influence and change and affect that, that flour. Just like when the gospel of the kingdom enters a heart, it still has the power to change people's lives. I was talking to somebody today, not today, but uh, earlier this week, we were, we were talking about the need to constantly evaluate ourselves, whether or not we're, in the, we're in, the, um, in the faith, making sure we're not deceiving ourselves. And this person says, you know, I just look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, therefore, if, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And when the gospel came into my life, this person said, my desires changed. My, everything about me changed. What was that? It was the gospel of the kingdom permeating this person's life and powerfully influencing that. And I still believe that when the gospel of the kingdom is expressed to the lost, that the possibility exists that God will take that yeast and permeate that person's heart and they will become a changed creature on their way to heaven. Just like Ryle said, and when that person, when that person truly trusts Christ, they will want to be in services like this, around people like this, honoring. I think that can still happen today. I may be naive enough to think that the gospel can still change hearts even in the face of this opposition. And I hope you do too, because if we don't feel that way, let's just lock the doors when we leave and not, never come back. The gospel will succeed. The kingdom will advance even in the face of this opposition. Let us do the following three things. Application. Application. Real quick, real quick, what are we to do here? Let's praise mercy. Let's praise mercy. Talking about the mercy we've already received in our lives. And we've done that. We've, we've praised, praised the Lord for his mercy. Let's proclaim mercy. <laughs> Let's evangelize. Let's share the mercy of God with other people. And maybe, most importantly for all of us, let's practice mercy. Let's seek and summon and speak to others 
who need the mercy of God. Our Father, we thank you today for Jesus. I just love preaching through this gospel because we see a different glory of Christ each week. And today to see his mercy on this nameless woman is a shame to us, Father, because we often neglect and ignore those who are in greatest need of mercy. Help us, Father, to be merciful as we have been shown mercy. Help us, Father, to praise the mercy we've received in our life and yet to share that mercy with other people and have the hope and confidence that even in the face of terrible opposition to the gospel, the kingdom will succeed. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.